Young and Jane Wyatt. With Eleanor Donahue, Billy Gray, and Lauren Chapin in Father Knows Best. It's all right, the first service didn't know what to do with that either. <laughs> Hopefully it got you thinking about the family, right? That's what we're here to talk about. So, you know what, let's pray and we're going to dive right in. Father, thank you for uh, the opportunity we have to gather here this morning, to take time out of our busy lives to worship you as the congregation of faith in Jesus Christ. I pray, God, as we talk about your church and grace and how it relates to this idea of family, that, God, you might teach us something we didn't know today, maybe from your word. And, Lord, more importantly, would you help us all to be doers of your word, not afraid to apply to our own families that which we're going to learn. Things have changed a lot, God, in the last 50 or 60 years here in our western part of the world when it comes to the family. Help us to make sense of that. Help us to be grounded in your word. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, that's the note I want to begin on, and our video bump showed that, that a lot has changed in the family <laughs> in just the last 50 or 60 years uh, in our western part of the world and here in America. I mean, I want you to think about your family growing up and then think about what it is now and ask yourself, is it by and large the same or has it undergone some tremendous changes? I mean, unless you're a teenager who maybe <clears throat> hasn't experienced all that many changes, the vast majority of us here today have witnessed and seen changes in the way that our culture approaches family, the likes of which our grandparents never thought imaginable or never thought possible. I mean, right before us, we have seen culture undergo a tremendous change in the way we view, understand, and even approach the family. And though some of the changes have been good and some of them not so good, one of the things that it leaves a lot of people left with is a, is, is a lack of clarity and direction when it comes to this thing called family. And that's why we showed you those video bumps that we showed you just a minute ago. Because it reveals to us that you've gone from the cleavers to now what is the hottest thing, the modern family. And everything in between. 
And sociologists point out that we have completely redefined our approach, our take on the family is vastly different than what it was 50 or 60 years ago. And it's left a lot of people, at the very best, slightly confused, a little foggy on what the family is. And at the most, it's left many people cold and kind of sterile to the the potential and life-changing possibilities of how God designed the family. And so what I want to do as we kick off this two-month series here at Scottsdale Bible Church on grace and the family is begin this morning by laying a foundation as to what the Bible says about God's design for the family. Because you see, folks, what most people don't realize is that not only did God invent the family, we'll see what I mean by that in just a few minutes here, but he invented it with an instruction manual. He really did. Just like your car has an instruction manual that most of you don't read that gives clarity and direction on how you operate your car, we have the Bible. And the Bible's not just a religious book that gives us a bunch of spiritual, esoteric things about the Godhead, though it does contain that. It's also very practical, as many of you know, when it comes to our finances, our relationships, as we're going to see even this morning, this idea of the family. I was meeting with a seminary professor and some students a while back, and and I asked him an interesting question. I said, you you know, when we were all in seminary, uh, we learned about eschatology, the study of the end times. We learned about pneumatology, the study of the spirit. We learned about hamartiology, the study of sin. Soteriology, the study of salvation. Theology, the study of God. I said, "But, but when did we ever learn about an ology for the family? And what would an ology of the family look like? And they gave me that infamous deer in the headlights look. Like we have no idea, like some of you are doing right now, what you're talking about, Jamie. My, my point is simply this, that in graduate school on theology in the Bible, we talk about all the different ologies, the study of God, the study of salvation, the study of the end times, all good things that we talk about here at our church. But very rarely do we ever establish a study of the family and what God has said about the family and his design for the family. And yet there is one, and that's what I want us to start covering today and even into the following weeks. And so to accomplish this this morning, I want to share with you one passage, just one, from the Bible that I believe forms a seminal understanding of what God has designed the family to be. And so if you brought a Bible with you today, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3, And we're going to be reading from verses 14 to 19. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's a really good chance there's one in the pew rack in front of you. You can look in the index there. I don't know what page it is, but find the book of Ephesians and turn to chapter 3, verse 14. If you want, you can just look up here on the screen. As always, I'll have the scripture for you. So follow along as I read this idea of the family in Ephesians 3. It says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, believe it or not, folks, contained in these verses here are the foundational building blocks that can and should form our understanding of the family. 
And the key passage that you don't want to miss here is actually found in verses 14 and 15. This is the key of it all. When it says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I want you to link together right in your mind right now, verse 14 where it says the Father with verse 15 where it says every family in heaven and on earth is named. Bible experts actually actually debate what this precisely means. And the key to how you interpret it is actually found in that little phrase there in verse 15, every family. Bear with me here. The New American Standard Bible, the English Standard Version, the Revised Standard Version, interpret and translate this in what you have before you as every family. While interestingly, the the New International Version and the Old King James Version translate this whole family. So you have every family versus whole family. And though at first glance this might seem like an insignificant distinction, it's actually very significant. You see, if we translate this whole family, then most likely what this passage is saying then is that God's whole family, the church, the family of God, stems from God and is patterned after God. Because the phrase whole family here would most likely be referring to God's family, which is obviously followers of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church. And though it surely is true that God's family, the church, patterns itself after God and who he is. I mean, there's tons of other passages that talk about that. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, other passages like that. I don't believe that this that is the best translation here of the Greek phrase pasa patria here in Ephesians 3. No, I think the best translation is what you have before you, every family, which the ESV, the NASB, the RSV, even now the new revised New International Version has changed it to every family. Because folks, don't miss this, it alters the meaning here. It suggests that the entire idea of family, the entire idea of fatherhood in general, is named after and derived from God. That the idea and concept of family, every family that exists, whether in heaven with people who have now deceased or on earth with all the living, is designed and patterned after God himself, who he is and what he does. In fact, what most Bible experts point out is that the Greek word patria here in verse 15, the word that we translate family, is very closely linked to the Greek word found in the previous verse for father, the Greek word patera. It's actually a play on words that the author is using, patera, father, and patria, family. So the most literal translation would be this, I kneel before the father, patera, from whom all fatherhood, pasa patria, in heaven and on earth is named. So the entire concept, existence, and experience of the family stems from God himself. If you're still at all confused on this, I want you to listen to how Francis Folks, who is the writer of the famous Tyndale Bible Commentary, puts it when he's commenting on Ephesians. This is very revealing and I think even clears some things up. Look up here on the screen. He says the meaning is not simply that all in heaven and on earth have him as father. Every family is closer. The idea of fatherhood is there. In effect, the apostle is saying, think of any father-headed group in heaven and on earth. Each one is named from him. From him it derives its existence and its concept and its experience of fatherhood. And I say, whoa. 
I love that last line. From him, God, it, the family, derives its existence, its concept, as we're going to be challenged here in a minute, even its very experience. Or maybe even more powerful, listen to how the famous scholar F.F. Bruce, also commenting on this passage in Ephesians, puts it when comparing this idea of patera, God as father, with patria, the family. Look at what he says. He says, presented as the archetypal father, all other fatherhood in the universe is derived from his. The Greek noun patria is self-evidently related to the word meaning father, patera, and it makes immediate sense to say that every patria is named after the heavenly patera. Likewise, it makes sense to say that every fatherhood is named after the heavenly father. Are you starting to see? I know this is kind of heady for some of you, but this is really important for laying the foundation. The entire concept of the family, its existence and function, is both derived from and patterned after God. And those are going to contain eminently practical things in just a minute. This should alter the way that we begin to see the family. It alters the way that we see the sitcoms and the primetime shows that we see. It alters the way that we have Starbucks conversations with those about the family. It alters the way that we read the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or the Arizona Republic or Time Magazine. You and, I are, you and I are now starting to form a theology, or maybe call it a patriology, of the family, formed on what God has said about the family. And so in its most simple form, here's what I believe Ephesians 3 is getting at. Look up here on the screen. And that is that God and his fatherhood form the foundation and prototype for the family. That's what I'm trying to say. I think that's what the text is communicating. That God and who he is as father forms the foundation. And then as we'll see, even the pattern of what it means to be and have a family. And once you get this, folks, it changes everything. It literally changes everything. Because if you're tracking with me this morning, every one of us should be perking up right now and asking yourselves, well, okay, Jamie, if it is God that indeed is the prototype for the family, if who he is and what he has done becomes the basis for our entire existence and concept and experience, then what do we need to know about God that might help us live rightly as families before him? Or put another way, what is it about God that actually gives the family its cues on how to function best or even function at all? And this is precisely what Ephesians 3 goes on to answer. Three things I want to leave you with here this morning. Three things that Ephesians 3 goes on to describe about God that I believe are also patterns that you and I need to implement in our families. And whatever kind of family you have, whether you're a single family or whether you're a regular uh, traditional nuclear family, or whether you are now grandparents that have kids that aren't living with you anymore, but whether you're a single person who's still relating to your family, maybe looking to have your own family. I mean, whatever lot in life you have, these are three things that the Scriptures go on to give us here that all of us need to model after the, pat the Patera Father in our now Patria, our family. And here's the first thing, and that is strength. Strength. Simply put, being a source of strength and encouragement for each other in our families models itself directly after God as our Father and what He does and who He is for us as His children. You'll see what I mean. Look at how Ephesians 3 verse 16 goes on to say, right after it outlines that every family is designed after God. This is interesting. 
It says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be, here it is, strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Fascinating choice of words the author is using. Strengthened with power in your inner being. And that phrase, strengthened with power, literally means to be strong in the sense of capable. Isn't that cool? Strong in the sense of capable. It pictures God's Holy Spirit being able to impart strength to you and me, power. And because he is capable to do that, he then makes us capable to live life God's way. And so it pictures the Holy Spirit living inside of you and me now that we're followers of Jesus Christ. And he gives us both protection and provision, strength and power in order to live as followers of Almighty God. And when it says there that this happens in your inner being, that's important because it simply refers to the deepest parts of your soul and life, what one expert calls the immortal personality of a person. So God strengthens you and me from the inside out, not the other way around. He causes a spirit who lives in us to give us power and strength, again, protection and provision, so that from the deepest parts of who we are, and many of us have experienced this, we find strength to live the Christian life. That's why we say the Christian life, we learned in the last series, is all about grace. Because it's grace that not just saves you, but it's grace now that empowers you by his Holy Spirit who lives in you. And so let me ask you folks, if it is true that the patria, the family, is designed and patterned after the patera, the father, and if it is further true that the father then gives strength and power in the deepest places through his spirit to his followers, his family, then don't you think that this becomes one of the great and divine purposes of the family? That the family then becomes a source of strength, of protection and provision as it patterns itself after Almighty God who both designed the family and now models for it what strength and power do and look like? I think this is right. And I think it's especially important for us as fathers and for us as mothers when it comes to how we lead and encourage and strengthen our family to make it a profound place of grace as we take our cues now from God himself. As many of you know how I function, I spend Thursday in exegesis, just, just digging into the text and finding the things that I just shared with you. And then I spend Friday of my week putting the text together. And I get to a point where I say, okay, Jamie, you've explained the text hopefully clearly to people. Now, how does this apply? And so I'm sitting in my office Friday afternoon thinking, gosh, there's so many examples that I could give you guys here when it comes to what this looks like. But then I remembered reading a book years ago by Corey Ten Boom called The Hiding Place. And I remember a story that she shared in, then that, that, in that book that deeply moved me. I want to share it with you. As you might recall, Corey grew up in Holland, the daughter of a jeweler, and she lost both her parents and her sister during the Holocaust as they protected persecuted Jews. And Corey herself even spent time in a Nazi concentration camp. And her book, The Hiding Place, is all about her journey, her life, and her faith in Christ. And so I want you to listen to a story she tells of something that happened to her with her father when she was about 10 years old. Don't miss that, 10 years old. She was riding on a train from Amsterdam to Harlem, and she was reading a book, no iPods or Game Boys back then, and she was reading this book, there was a poem in it that used the phrase sex sin. Sex sin for a 10-year-old back then. And she asked her father what that meant. Let me read for you 
what happened. She says, and so seated next to the father in the train compartment, I suddenly asked, Father, what is sex sin? He turned to look at me as he always did when answering a question, but to my surprise, he said nothing. At last, he stood up, lifted his traveling case from the rack over our heads and set it on the floor. Will you carry it off the train, Corey, he asked. I stood up and tugged at it. It was crammed with watches and spare parts he had purchased that morning. It's too heavy, I said. Yes, he said, and it would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you are older and stronger, you can bear it. But for now, you must trust me to carry it for you. Corey goes on to say, I was satisfied, more than satisfied, wonderfully at peace. There were answers to this and all my hard questions, but for now, I was content to leave them in my father's keeping. Wow. Folks, I miss stories like that today, don't you? I miss stories like this today where a father sees his number one role to protect the purity of his daughter. That even a 10-year-old that might have questions, and I know it's debatable on when we should teach our children about sex, and I know some of you are going to take it upon yourselves to send me an email based on this illustration. <laughs> outlining for me exactly what age we should do this. And I'll read it, and I'll say thank you. And I don't have all the answers to that. All I know is what psychologists do share with us and sociologists, two things about today that you're going to want to latch on to. The first thing they share with us is that the average child today is asked to grow up much faster than the average child 50 years ago, and that this is not a good thing. Can we own that this morning? I, I mean, I, I'm just astounded sometimes when people say, you know, kids have to grow up much faster today. Some people say it as if that's a bragging right, as if somehow that's a good thing. I don't know of an eminent sociologist or psychologist that would affirm that's a good thing. The vast majority of, of us recognize and have to live in the world around us, and so we recognize the pragmatic reality, but most of us who are thinking about it bemoan the fact that our children are losing their innocence that our children are asked to grow up much faster than we ever were, and that this is not a good thing. That's the first thing we need to own here this morning. The second thing, however, is even more hard, but we got to wrestle with this, folks, and that is that most parents err on the side of allowing too much bad culture to creep in too early. It's true. Every cultural indicator shows us this, that most parents err on the side of allowing too much to creep in too early. Get this, even within the church. And most of us are raised, or many of us, in legalistic environments. And so we've responded to our legalism saying, I'm not going to put my kids under all those rules I grew up with. And in one sense, that's a good thing. I empathize with that. I don't want to go back to the legalistic days. But that doesn't mean that with our children, there is not a point where as parents, we need to provide strength and protection and provision. I'm not talking just physically, because we do that very well, but emotionally and spiritually and relationally. And all I know is that you and I have huge tugs on our lives as parents, as grandparents, even as siblings, to not provide the needed protection, provision, and strength that our kids and brothers and sisters so desperately need. You know, I got saved in a real legalistic environment, and so I really worked hard with my children to not raise them in a legalistic way. And I'll never forget about, probably about 10 years ago now, maybe eight or nine years ago, my son was about 11, and he came home one day when we were living in Cleveland, and he said, Dad, all the friends from school are going to see this movie. Can I go see it? 
And I said, what's it rated? He said, PG-13. And, you know, I, again, I hate being the minister and the father and the one to always say no, but I, I looked up the movie, and it was rated PG-13 for, for language and for violence. And I thought, well, you know, the kid probably sees it all and hears it all as it is anyways. And so I was real tempted to say yes until I thought, you know, I probably need to check this out with some people I respect. So I called one of my buddies, Dave, who's just raised three or two awesome kids that were a little bit older than my kids. And I really respected Dave. He and his wife, Kathy, just, just wonderful parents, strong Christian people in the world, but not of it. And I told him my dilemma. I said, Dave, you know, my, my son who's 11 wants to go to this PG-13 movie. What do you think? And I'll never forget his answer. I mean, it was like one of these big duh moments for me when he said to me, he said, well, Jamie, he said it so reasonably. He said, well, Jamie, he said, you know, Kathy and I kind of figure that if Hollywood, which doesn't share our value system as Christians, doesn't think that a child should see it till they're 13, then maybe Kathy and I should err on the side of being conservative. <laughs> and I remember turning like eight shades of red on the other side of the phone. I was like, don't tell anybody I asked you this question, Dave. <laughs> I was like, duh, well, that makes sense. So I got off the phone and I said to Paul, I said, here's the deal. I said, if the movie is rated PG-11, you can go. <laughs> I said, but if as long as it's rated PG-13, and I said to him, I said, I'm assuming that if Hollywood, who doesn't share the values of us as a family, then maybe we should err on the side of conservatism. And it was like, well, duh. And see, here's all I know, is if I'm tempted to fudge, then we're all in trouble, amen? I, I mean, because, you know, I'm surrounded by you guys all week. I'm surrounded by the Dave and Kathys and people who remind me of my faith and my value system, and I feel the pressure. And so I got to believe that you feel the pressure as well. Folks, listen, one of the most potent and yet beautiful things about the family is that God has demonstrated for you and me what strength and power in the form of protection and provision look like. And he's now asked us to be this way for our children, for our spouses, our parents, our brothers, our sisters, to establish our families as places of relational and emotional and intellectual strength and support. And it's an awesome thing when you see it played out. Now, we're just getting started. Uh, as we follow along the text of Ephesians 3, I want you to know with me a second cue that we get as we follow God within our families. And you're going to like this one, I think, and that is presence. Presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. -E. Simply put, put, the fact that God gives his followers a rich and deep experience of his abiding presence, and this becomes a powerful pattern for the family as well. What do I mean by this? I want you to look at how our text communicates this to us in, verses, in verse 17a. It goes on to say, so that Christ may dwell, that's the operative word, dwell in your hearts through faith. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now that word dwell here is very rich in meaning. In the original language that the New Testament was written in, it literally means to take up residence within to take up residence within. It comes from the Greek word for house, and it pictures somebody actually coming to your home and residing with you, taking up residence with you, being with you in body, soul, and spirit. And so obviously in the context here, it's talking about what Christ has done for us now that we are saved by his blood, that he, the Father, and the Holy Spirit literally take up residence in our soul, in our heart, and our mind. It's his abiding presence for us. It's what Jesus meant in Matthew 28, verse 20, when he said, Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's what God has affirmed to you and me in Hebrews 13, when he says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He gives us his faithful and abiding 
presence, never to be taken away. And here now in Ephesians 3, this aspect of the patera, the father, now becomes a pattern for the patria, the family. Don't miss this. God's abiding presence with us becomes a clarion call for you and me to make sure that this becomes the norms for our family as well. And it's so powerful when you latch on to it. You know, about 30 years ago, I can remember when this happened, culture shifted in the way that we started thinking about this idea of presence in our family. And some of you remember this too. We started to argue that quality time could replace quantity time. Do you remember that? It, we really, we started to argue that if I just spent quality time with my kids, I mean, took them to the right places and watched the right shows and had family devotions and whatever it was for you that would be quality time, that I could get away with not as much quantity time. And I would submit to you that that is not only a dangerous theology of the family, that it would be arguably heretical. Because the reality is God comes along and he says, no, presence, abiding, constant presence is the name of the game. It's core to a theology of the family. The fact that God is always with us. And though we can't always be with each other, you're never going to be able to substitute quantity time for quality time. You know, I count myself blessed because when I was young as a pastor and as a father, I had this drilled into me by the men around me. We were in a conservative church in Detroit, and they just would have no room, no shenanigans for this overworked stuff that would allow me to ignore my family. And so they made sure that, you know, I rose early and, and, and got to the church and did a hard day's work, but that I'd be home by about 5, 6 o'clock to spend time with my family. And I remember coming home at about five or six when the girls were real young and Paul was just born and we had three under four, you know, at that time and it was just very overwhelming. And I'd come home and I'd want to go for a jog or I'd want to watch a show or I'd want to read a book or just do something because I'd been working hard all day. But Kim had been at home all day with the kids and, and the look alone just like spoke volumes. She would just be like, you know, they're, they're yours. And then, like many men, I, I tried to even weasel out of bed. I thought, well, okay, they're mine, but hey, you guys want to go, let's go restore a car together or something like that, you know? Or I'd be like, you know, let's go for a jog. Wouldn't that be fun? Or let's go watch dad play basketball. Or, you know, I, I try to find all these ways to integrate them into my world until I finally learned that what my kids wanted to do was play Legos, that what they wanted to do was go to a playground. And I'm so glad that I made the choice back then to become a connoisseur of playgrounds. That I made a choice back then to be the kind of dad that didn't mind building Legos even though it was as boring a thing as I could imagine. I mean, I didn't want to do it, but I did it. Bill Hybels, uh, pastor of Willow Creek Community Church, argues that it takes about 100 hours of hangout time with your kids for one teachable moment. And I think he's right. And that's a scary statistic. 100 hours of hangout time with your children for one teachable moment. Aren't you glad the business world doesn't function under that model? We'd never get anything done. But the reality is, is that relationality, whether it's marriage or parenting or grandparenting or dating, it, it all functions the same way. 100 hours for about one teachable moment. And I got to tell you, folks, I'm still challenged by this. I don't always succeed. The other day, one of my daughters was home from college and she had a bad day on a Tuesday. And Tuesday is my busiest day here at the church. And she stopped by, and I've always prided myself that if one of my kids stops by, I drop everything and I attend to her. So she stopped by and was chatting with me about just what's going on in her life, and there were some tears and other things. And 
And uh, so I spent about, what, three minutes of quality time with her and uh, even about two minutes of prayer. And then I said, I got to get back to my next meeting, but I'll call you. And so uh, about three days went by. Did you count that? Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, into Friday. By Friday afternoon, when I was just wrapping up my sermon prep, I thought, I wonder how my daughter's doing at college. So I gave her a call. And, and, and I could tell right when I called her that she was being a little bit cold. I got three women in my house. I'm really attuned to that type of stuff. And so I said, what's wrong? And she's learned so well from Kim, because when I say what's wrong, the answer is, you should know. And I never know. So I said, what's wrong? And the you should know. And I said, no, no, really, I can tell something's wrong. And then she said, well, Dad, you know, I stopped by Tuesday. You gave me five minutes time. You had meetings all day Wednesday. You probably did sermon prep on Thursday and Friday. She's right. And she goes, and now you're calling me. She said, I've been a mess since Tuesday, thank you. I wish you had called. She was right. You know, some men would have said to their daughters, well, hey, you got a phone too, babe. You can pick it up and call me. And that might be true, but I thought, no. You, you see, the, the theology of family is about presence. The theology of family is about me as a leader of the family being present with my children, being present with my wife. And at the end of the day, men, let's just own it. There's no excuses here. I mean, we have to own it when we blow it, apologize, and then do better. And again, let me speak to men directly, because maybe some of you women struggle with this too. I, I tend to be the kind of guy that because I got so much on my plate, now tell me if this isn't true for you, I even know how to be present physically, but not present emotionally or relationally. Kim can tell the difference. In my first pastorate, I served for nine years as an associate pastor, and my senior pastor used to say to me at times when we were chatting, just he and I alone, he'd say, you're staring. And I'd say, what do you mean you're staring? He goes, you're staring. Jamie, whenever you stare, I know what it means. You're not listening to me. And he said, you nod your head yes, because you went through counseling skills training in seminary. And so you know that if you nod your head yes, people are thinking you're listening, but you're staring right now. And I can tell you're not listening. I thought, oh my gosh, do not share that one with Kim. I thought, this could be like a marriage wrecker, a staring. I do that all the time. And for nine years, he would say to me on a regular basis, you're staring. You're staring. And, and I had to learn, man, I had to discipline myself to stop multitasking in the presence of those I love, and to be present when I'm present. Because you see, here's the point. God is that way with us. The patera has patterned for the patria, what it means to have a strong family. And presence is the name of the game. You can't substitute quality time for quantity time. And when you're there, you got to be there. So you got strength, you got presence, and then finally, notice with me a third cue that the family gets from God. And this wraps it all together. And that is love. It's love. And I know how some of you are thinking. You're thinking right now, yeah, 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 Jamie, love. I know love. I mean, we're supposed to love each other. Who doesn't know that? But not so fast. Because I want you to look with me as we wrap up here at how Ephesians 3 goes on to define and describe this love that God has for us that now is supposed to be written into the DNA of our families. This will blow your mind. Look at verses 17b through 19. It says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, that's a key phrase, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
Three things I want you to take home with you just about that passage there and how it blows away almost every one of our conceptions of love. First, notice that it says that in Christ we are rooted and grounded in his love. In other words, it's the anchor point of our relationship with him. Rooted is plant imagery. Grounded is a building, foundation imagery. And so his love for you and me forms the anchor point of our lives. It roots and grounds us. God loves us this way. It all stems with his grace. And he says, now unleash that on your families. In fact, I've looked at it this way for years. As God's love gives you and me eternal security, meaning that he loves us unconditionally and he's never going to let go, the family becomes the seedbed for relational security. Isn't that interesting? In other words, the family is the only unit, and you and I know this, where you can be completely yourself and loved still. Try being completely yourself at work. There's consequences for that. Try being completely yourself, even in your social settings. There are consequences for that. Wayne and Bev, don't you love this? That the family becomes the only unit that I can think of that has the power to give us relational security with each other. You are loved no matter what. No matter what, you're rooted and grounded in love. And then if that doesn't blow you away, look at the second way it describes the love of God here that, again, needs to be applied to the family, and that is that it is a multidimensional love hammering us from every side. I love this one. Yeah, I don't know if you caught it there, but in verse verse 18, it says that Christ's love has a breadth component, a length component, a height component, and a depth, depth component to it. Did you see that there? It's hammering us from every side. It's simply saying that when you look at the breadth of God's love, when you look at the length of God's love, when you look at the height of God's love, when you look over the chasm at the depth of God's love, you know what you find? His grace, his love for you. No matter where you look, as the psalmist says, no matter where you go, there is his presence and there is his love, and the family is to be the same way. We are to to bombard each other with love on every side. And then, if that's not enough, third thing that really brings it all together notice that Christ's love for us is experiential in nature in other words we're supposed to feel it not just know it fascinating it says there in verse 19 and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge what most commentators point out is that know there means to know by experience not just head knowledge the old I know he or she loves me but I don't really feel it no that has no room here it's the kind of love in which you feel it in your bones that God loves you And now that's supposed to be the reality of the family. See, some of you have never really felt that God loves you. You believe all the right things, but you've never really felt it. And I'm telling you that has profound implications on your family. It does. Because if you've never felt and experienced the love of God, then how are you ever going to pass on that same love to your children or to your spouse or to your brothers and sisters? or to your aunts and uncles, let alone your neighbors, your co-workers, your friends, your service providers. Add all this up, rooted and grounded in love, breadth, length, height, depth of God's love, surpassing knowledge, experiential nature. This is the kind of love God has for you. And he says, now, now have that be integrated solely into your family. Folks, in short, I want to leave you with this thought. God has designed families to be bastions of love, mercy, forgiveness, and grace. It's really true. Somebody asked me, almost questioning, questioning, questioning it uh, over the last couple of weeks. They said, okay, you're gonna, you spoke on grace and God for six weeks. Now you're going to speak eight weeks on grace and family. What are you going to say? Like, is there that much grace they were basically suggesting for the family? Oh, my gosh. We could spend all year 
on grace in the family and we barely scratched the surface. We're going to take a look in the coming weeks how grace applies to your marriage, how grace applies to a broken marriage, how grace applies to parenting, grandparenting, single parenting, how grace even applies if you're going it alone, if you've had to go alone, how grace applies if you're an adult child now relating to aging parents. We're going to take a look at all that stuff. But make no mistake, today is the foundation. In every family unit, no matter how it's seen, this side of heaven, even on the next, it's strength, it's presence, and it's love. I kneel before the Father, from whom every family, from whom every fatherhood in heaven and on earth derives its name. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your grace is that vast, your grace is that deep, your grace is that powerful and gritty that it even comes and affects deeply the way families are seen and experienced as we submit to you. And Father, we live in a culture today that is clearly post-Christian, that no longer has the value system that it did 100, 150 years ago coming out of Christendom. And so, Lord, we get a lot of confusing messages when we watch the media and when we listen to things when it comes to the family. I pray that today might have grounded us a bit more that we might be grounded more in your word and what you say about family than the messages we get out there. God, for some of us here today, we've heard a great challenge when it comes to strength or presence or love. God, help each one of us to apply this and go the next step, to strengthen our family to make it more like you. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you revealed these things to us. Help us as we apply it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.